morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you can enjoy curbside pickup, free shipping on orders over $25, and shopping by appointment. We're excited at Inside the Writer's Studio to have a new affiliate and a great deal to offer our listeners. If you love audiobooks, you'll love Libro FM. Libro FM has all the same audiobooks as other audiobook companies, but when you buy through Libro FM, you support Bookmarks or your local independent bookstore. That's right, instead of buying from a giant corporation, you're buying from your local bookstore. Listeners to Inside the Writer Studio can get a three month subscription to Libro FM for the price of one month. Just go to Libro.fm and enter the code WRITERS. Be sure to link to your local bookstore or make me really happy and link to bookmarks. My guest today is Benjamin Taylor, author of the new memoir, Here We Are, My Friendship with Philip Roth. I'd like to start with a general question, which I suppose in some ways gets at the very raison d'etre of this podcast, and that is, in what ways does getting to know an author enhance or alter our appreciation or our understanding of his works? Well... I've always been a reader of biographies, um, and I feel that uh, everything you can know about a writer is to the point and good. I'm not of that school that uh, discounts biographical information. Um, And uh, uh, in any case, uh, I was a reader of Philip before I knew him, but then we became best friends, and uh, it was something quite different. It, uh, uh, we spent so much time together and in so many circumstances that I think I uh, uh, very often forgot that this was a, a great American novelist. Uh, so engrossed was I in the friendship. The, one of the things that sort of surprised me, because I, I mean, I've read Roth, but I didn't know very much about his life, is the extent to which he does draw on his life, his acquaintances, his friends, his enemies, um, his family, uh, when crafting his novels. And you sort of, you tease that out quite a bit and show some of those parallels. How does, how does the reader's experience differ between a reader who knows all about those connections and a reader who is just approaching the text as the text? Philip was a kind of, uh, uh, the kind of writer who can be mistaken for a strictly autobiographical. Uh, he seems to be writing about himself all the time. In fact, he's writing very often about a, a so-called alter ego, Nathan Zuckerman, who is uh, in certain important respects, not him. I'll just give you one example. On Phillips' uh, estate in Connecticut, a 150-acre estate with a great old house dating to uh, uh, the uh, the first Washington administration, uh, uh, there is a, a little two-room cottage, and that was the studio where he did his writing for years. But in the novels, Nathan Zuckerman lives in a two-room cottage somewhere in the Berkshires. Philip uh, didn't live in a two-room cottage. He lived in a great big uh, old house with a little cottage on the on the grounds. 
So that's just one example of how uh, fiction revises the givens of real life. The, he, he liked to call real life the unwritten world uh, as opposed to the written world of, of his novels. And the transmutations between the unwritten world and the written world uh, are really what are most interesting when you read Roth. Uh, he was uh, a, uh, a reviser uh, of uh, his life. He, he used to say uh, the, the point of departure, but the point of departure only is my real life. And so do you think he wanted his readers to understand the, both the connections and the, as you said, the, the great differences between his real life and his, his fictional world? I think he wanted uh, people to forget about who he uh, was in the unwritten world and just pay attention to the invented, the fictional reality. And he was, uh, uh, he was insistent on that. However, he achieved the kind of fame that makes people tremendously curious about the life of the author. This isn't always the case. People weren't, people weren't very interested in Don DeLillo's real life or Cynthia Ozick's, or Alice Munro's. Uh, people weren't very interested in Joyce Carlitz's real life. Uh, Phillips was different. He had a, uh, uh, a, a life uh, lively enough, uh, and uh, in some cases scandalous enough, that people uh, wanted to uh, tether, tether the books to what they thought they knew of the real life. Uh, he found it all kind of a burden. Uh, he didn't, Philip didn't like fame. He liked recognition. Uh, and uh, uh, what he most disliked about fame was the inevitable falsifications that come of being that famous, uh, of being a, a, a writer whose name is known even to people who don't read books. I mean, I think you hit on something very interesting there about the nature of fame, especially of literary fame, and that is that in a way, it goes hand in hand with how interesting was the person's life. There, there are plenty of writers <laughs> whose works we know, we don't know much about their lives because they live fairly ordinary lives. But this, this man lived a life that makes a good novel. You know. yeah. Philip said to me about the, uh, the, the trap of fame, great fame that closed on him with Portnoy's complaint. He said, that book made me too famous. Uh, I was not Norman Mailer. Trouble was not my middle name. Uh, he didn't revel in it the way Mailer did. Uh, his his writing, his books were not advertisements for myself, as uh, Mailer uh, would have said. And uh, he always had this terrifically uh, ambivalent uh, relationship to fame and notoriety. He once said to me about. Uh, David Cornwell, who was a friend of his, known to the world as John Le Carre, I should have had uh, a pseudonym like that. And even he even once said to me about Thomas Pynchon's refusal to come out of hiding at all. He he once said to me, "I should have done that." Yeah, yeah, because that is certainly the choice that some some authors have made. Um, if, if we have listeners who've never read Philip Roth. Where would you tell them to start? I mean, I know for myself, I started with Goodbye Columbus. That was. I don't know, decades ago. Um, but does that, does that feel like the place to start now if, you, if you're not familiar with Roth, or is there a better entrance into the oeuvre? I would go right into the late major phase that which 
is the uh, books of the 90s, Operation Shylock, Sabbath Theater, American Pastoral, I Married a Communist. But uh, uh, I would start with uh, what seems to me the masterpiece of them all, The Human Stain, which is a book uh, uh, with a very strange premise. It tells the story, not an unknown story at all in American life, of a white-seeming black man who crosses the color line and abandons his black family of origin uh, uh, to live as a Jewish intellectual. Uh, and uh, uh, it's in that book that I think he goes deepest into the heaviest burden of American life, which is race. Uh, and uh, uh, it's a book to put alongside Hakfin or Beloved or uh, Native Son or Black Boy or Invisible Man or any of the very greatest books about race in America. So this this book that you've written is uh, subtitled My Friendship with Philip Roth. Tell us just briefly, how did you meet and, and how did that friendship develop? We met in October of 1994 at the birthday party, 60th birthday party, of our great friend Joel Canero. And uh, uh, that was a, vivid, a much more vivid occasion for me than for him. He, he, he never even, he, he didn't even remember it in after years when we did become quite close friends. After reading I Married a Communist, I wrote him a letter and a few days later the telephone rang and it was Philip wanting to talk. And that was the beginning of a telephonic friendship. Then he moved back uh, to New York uh, for a larger portion of the year. Uh, and I was in New York full time. And the friendship developed uh, first meeting for lunch and then for dinners. And then uh, I would spend uh, weeks at a time, uh, some, sometimes up in the country in Warren, where, as I say, he had a big house. And uh, um, we we became each other's best friend. Do you think there's something special? And I ask this because for me in my life, there has been something special um, about the friendship between a straight man and a gay man. I mean, those, those have been some of my most important friendships in my life. Uh, how, how did that aspect of the relationship play out in, in your friendship with Philip? Mm. Philip never had a, a trace of prejudice and had, been, uh, had had gay friends all of his adult life. So that wasn't a, that wasn't a factor. But I think if you ask most gay men, they will tell you that uh, it's rare for them to have uh, a, a deeply intimate friendship with a straight man. But when it happens, there's no stopping it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's for for me, my um, my college roommate was gay. You know, and this was in the early '80s in the South when it was very difficult to be out. And yeah, you know, we've although we rarely see each other, we still you know considered it to be best friends. And when we do see each other, it's like no time has passed at all. It's just been, um, you know, for me, a really important part of my life. You know, you know, my being gay and his being straight gave us a lot of notes to compare, you could say. Now, Philip Roth was 20 years older than, than you are, and you describe him at one point as the chosen parent of my middle age. In what ways did you see him as a parent? Well, <clears throat> Uh, equality is the emotion of friendship, and when you are when you're laughing together or seeing the same 
thing in the same ways. You do feel equal, but I never lost sight of the fact that he was a genius and I'm just a competent person. So that was very, uh, that was important. We were neatly one generation apart and uh, for a long time, ever since I came of age myself, I'd rather been in awe of the generation before mine, the generation of my parents. Uh, uh, They were a remarkable bunch. That generation and a half, I guess you could say. People born in the teens, the 20s and the 30s. Those were people who were young or children in the Depression. They saw fear in their parents' eyes and it made workhorses of them. And I do think they worked harder than we do and had, uh, uh, have had more to offer. There's something inevitably uh, a little bit mighty about the preceding generation, the generation that precedes one own, one's own. Uh, uh, John Dunn writes, we are, we are scarce our father's shadow cast at noon. Uh, I did feel sometimes a little small, not in Philip's shadow, but in his light. Uh, and I would say it was the power of a whole generation. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel that way too. My my father, who just passed away quite recently, was one of that generation. And as you described that, I felt like you were describing him exactly. <laughs> you, know? um, you you write of a of a shared joke with, with Philip Roth. You say that, uh, is the quick of friendship here in finding the same things lastingly funny? And I just loved that line and that idea. I wondered if you had a thought about what was the quick of your friendship? Uh, hilarity, hijinks, high, high uh, 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 iconoclasm. A lot of people who write and a lot of people who don't write feel like, well, if I could write something, it would be a memoir because something has happened to me. You know, But writing a memoir is not just writing down what has happened to you. And, and this book especially is struck me as it does not begin on page one, one day I met Philip Roth, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this, this happened. Um, can you talk a little bit about the structure of your book and, and why you chose to tell the story the way you did? It, it obeys no rules of chronology, but I wasn't trying to be arty or, or uh, modernist in any way. Uh, I was just uh, following the lead of my instinct. It's, uh, it's strange that sometimes uh, an editor... Uh, can speak more articulately about the structure of a book than the author. When I try to talk about it, I become kind of tongue-tied. Uh, uh, I do, I do remember writing it, and I do remember that I felt there was some sort of uh, progression involved. I suppose the linearity was that I tried to talk about his early, early, or have him talk uh, about his early books early in the book, his middle book's in the middle, and his later book's towards the end. But even that isn't obeyed. Uh, I was just, I I was obeying my instincts. The thing about being a memoirist is that um, you you have to make everything interesting on the page, which, of course, it, it all was not in real life. There's just so much of real life, the raw material that you must uh, rearrange and, and all the all the chapters of real life that you must leave out as less interesting 
or just boring. Uh, uh, I think this is the mistake memoirists make when they feel, in the name of authenticity, that they have to keep the boring parts in. It's it's uh, it's really um, it has much more in common with with uh, fiction writing uh, than that. You, it it has to be as as graceful as fiction and as continuously interesting as fiction. It's just that uh, the understanding you have with your reader is that you haven't made any of this up. Uh, I didn't make up, but I did dramatize. I did uh, dramatize the data. And that's really what a memoirist does. Uh, the data by themselves won't do. It's the it's their dramatization. When I think about it, about you talking about all those times that you had lunch together, and I thought, you know, what a dull book it would be if it was a book about a thousand different lunches. But if you can somehow, <laughs> if you can somehow capture in in one scene the essence of those one thousand lunches, to me, that's. That's the art of the memoir and, and, as you say, the art of the novel as well. And you say some wonderful things um, in your book about the difference between novels and memoirs. And rather than just quote the things that you say, tell, tell us a little bit about what you see as the essential elements of that difference between, between the two forms. Well, writing a novel makes a god of you. Uh, you are the creator of these people, the creator of this universe, and you can... Uh, uh, do what you want. You won't necessarily be praised for it, but you can do what you want. Uh, whereas writing a me- memoir or autobiography does not make a god of you. You are the servant of what happened. And, and uh, uh, candor is the passport to everything, whereas inventiveness is the passport to everything when you write a novel. Um, I think that the the autobiographer succeeds by his candor and by um, finding finding the form that is most expressive of what really happened. But if you try to, in a literal-minded way, try to set out what really happened, as you say, the results will be boring. By the time you met and befriended Philip Roth, he was already a, a literary icon. You said you knew that, that, that he was a genius. And you must have known as the relationship developed that it was important beyond its own bounds. Did, did, you, did you record the relationship in the moment in any way? Did you keep notes or write a journal? or How, how, how did you process it while it was happening? In a very unsystematic way and with no view to writing this book, I would sometimes write down things. I'm, I'm a writer. I habitually write things down. Uh, but the, uh, this book was not the result of any long premeditation. This book took shape quite suddenly one day when he said, why don't you write a book about our friendship? And that was, that was near the end of his life. I think that was 2017, the year before he died. And then I found, I found that indeed I did have notes that were useful but more important than my notes was my memory. And I found that I could reconstruct direct speech uh, uh, if I sat long enough, just remembering what he said. Uh, and, you know, I found this with my previous book, uh, The Human Cry at Our House. Uh, those events in that book happened over half a century ago. But I did find that I could uh, uh, remember 
things verbatim that my mother had said or my father had said. Yeah, that's fantastic. Do you think when he's when he said that to you, why don't you write a book about our friendship? Was that did you feel that that was something he wanted you to do for him, or was that a gift to you? Oh, the latter. He, he knew he was giving me. He knew he was giving me something that would uh, that would uh, that would be rewarding to me, and and that would be viable. You reproduce in the beginning of the book a historical plaque, and it describes Philip Roth as, and here I'm, I'm quoting from the plaque here, an advocate of freedom in all its guises, personal and political. And especially in the light of the world we're living in right now, can you talk about how that phrase applied to him? That plaque has a lot of words on it, and they were, and it's extremely well written. I believe that Judith Thurman is responsible for writing that. Uh, and uh, it, it, the plaque is affixed to Phillips' apartment building on West 79th Street. Uh, yes, I think freedom was his watchword. Uh, uh, he wrote to be free. He lived to be free. And uh, he was always escaping from identities or skins that had become too confining for him. In, uh, in his art, which is very self-transformational, he goes through remarkable phases in the course of his career and in his personal life. Escape, he was an escape artist from, uh, from marriages, from uh, uh, the notions that the public had of him. Uh, uh, he was always uh, strategizing his freedom. Yeah, yeah. You, you talk about Roth, and actually I think you use this as the, the title of a piece in The Atlantic. You talk about him possessing the terrible gift of intimacy. What, what does that mean? Well, <clears throat> he had an extraordinary way with, the, with people of sitting quietly and asking them questions, more and more probing questions. And he had this mineral heart stare that was hard to evade. And you ended up telling him things that you hadn't told anybody else. I just, I just, I, I, and do you feel that was something he did not just with you, but with, with everyone that he met? <clears throat> I know somebody who is writing a biography of Jasper Johns, and I was curious to know. I didn't know anything about Johns as a man. I said, "What was he like? Does he ask you a lot of questions?" <laughs> she said, "He's never asked me a single question. <clears throat> he never asked anybody any questions." Well, that may be okay for a visual artist. But not for a novelist. Novelist is, is bound to ask ask lots of questions. <clears throat> but with Philip, it was highly seductive. I mean, I think in some ways the essence of being a novelist is is being curious. Oh, curious about human nature. Yes. We we walk down the streets and we we look across at the other sidewalk and we think, I wonder what that person's story is, and and, and from <laughs> from there it begins. <laughs> Fiction is about the inner life, all these inner lives that are hidden from us, but become available to us when we read novels and stories. One of the things I've experienced as, as a novelist is this sort of revelation that we, we have this almost this feeling that because the inner life is so inner, 
we, we tend to forget that everyone else has one too, that we're all having the same experience of having an inner life. Um, and so that anytime somebody reads one of your books, that inner life of the reader comes into play. It becomes a, a dance almost with, with, we, we, this is the most difficult recognition uh, and uh, it's uh, fiction that forces us on it. Uh, everybody, everybody out there is leading an inner life as epic as your own. So we talked briefly about um, Philip Roth's sense of humor. And one of your chapter titles, which I particularly like, is There is a God and His Name is Laughter. Can, can, you, can you tell us a little bit more about, about his sense of humor and what role laughter played in his life? I'm glad you liked that title. That title was the, was the working title of the book. But uh, I decided on Here We Are instead on the basis of someone's recommendation. Um, there is a God and his name is laughter. Yes, I suppose that was Philip's religion, such as it was. Uh, he, uh, he, quote, he quotes Heine in Operation Shylock. Uh, uh, there is a God and his name is Aristophanes, which I took to mean there is a God and his name is laughter. And, and did, did you feel that... Um... I mean, certainly there's humor in his novels, but was it, was it really central in his, in his personal life as well? Oh, yes. Laughter. He, he lived to laugh. You can't say that about everybody. Uh, some people uh, are mostly joke-proof. He was alive to the, uh, hyper-alive to the absurdities uh, of life. This memoir strikes me as not as as some literary memoirs are not gossipy it's not hey look what was going on behind the scenes it's it's a more a more gentle intimate memoir than that um and yet you do f- reveal some things which to some of us readers we might find surprising and one of the ones that i thought was fascinating is the fact that you said that roth said of portnoy's complaint that he wished he'd left the individually published chapters in magazines alone, let them stand on their own rather than publishing the whole thing as a book. Why do you think he felt that way? He felt that way, at least in one mood. Uh, he, uh, as I say, felt an ambivalence about notoriety. He didn't like uh, being, uh, uh, having people on the street yell at him, hey, Portnoy, things like that did not appeal to him. He had a more Henry Jamesian sense of himself. But how can you be Henry James if you write a book like Portnoy's Complaint? There were all kinds of compelling reasons not not to let those uh, chapters just remain in New American Review and Partisan Review and one other play. Was it Esquire, I think? Um, uh, That was never going to happen. Philip was after the big prize. Uh, and uh, uh, he won it with that with that book, uh, which remains shocking. Uh, in the fullness of time, he wrote a, a book, Sabbath Theater, that he thought that he said ought to replace Portnoy in everyone's heart. Uh, and uh, he felt that um, Sabbath Theater somehow revisited everything that was youthful and full of fun and vitality and had gone, uh, uh, gone rancid in, in, in middle age. 
That's what he said was depicted in Savas Theater, the rejoinder to Portnoy's complaint. You talk about a phrase um, that he uses, which, which again, really struck me because it seemed to um, have relevance both for his personal life and for his work. Um, And the phrase is, in the destructive element, immerse. Can you talk a little bit about how that played out? Yes. He loved that phrase from Lord Jim. Uh, He loved Conrad, uh, particularly in in old age. He turned to Conrad. Uh, in the destructive element, immerse and let the deep sea buoy you up, something like that. Uh, I can't remember the quote exactly. Um, Philip didn't want to write nice books or polite books. Uh, he, uh, he, he was looking for the extremes of human nature <clears throat> in order to reveal um, the most of human nature. And uh, I guess that was the destructive element. Also, his, his great heroes of the major phase, Swede Lvov and Coleman Silk and Ira Ringel, are men who are immersed in the destructive element of history. Uh, Swede Lvov, uh, the most uh, uh, virtuous, of solid citizens has a daughter who blows up a post office. And uh, Ira Ringgold is torn to shreds by his his fealty to the American Communist Party. And Coleman Silk is torn to shreds by uh, um, uh, what would you call it? Political correctness run amok. Uh, these are all solid men who are taken to pieces by their times. And Philip uh, felt, as their author, he was immersing himself as well in the destructive element. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that really came alive to me, and sometimes it's just in, in, in a sentence here and there, you don't go into this in great detail, but it, but it really sort of sparked for me was was his relationship with some uh, with some of the other authors with Saul Bellow with John Updike we see him sort of crossing swords with Truman Capote at one point and to me it's uh-huh. all very evocative of this era when not only were authors celebrities not only did authors show up on you know the Merv Griffin show and that sort of thing but but they were sort of members of a club that 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 knew one another that mostly was connected to New York City in one way or another do you think that that we'll ever see that again in, in American literature, where where there's that kind of uh, society of authors? Well, I tend I tend to think not. I think that happened to that generation, but because the novel was so important to the culture and was the uh, a kind of uh, central communicator uh, of the culture in which. Uh, uh, the meaning of, of uh, our times was sorted out for the for a large reading public in books as different as uh, Updike's rabbit novels and Philip's work and Bellows Herzog, which was a tremendous bestseller, uh, and 
um, and in cold blood. Uh, uh, and um, Mailer is a, is a yes, a tremendous celebrity, the biggest celebrity of them all. Uh, also, Gore Vidal. These were uh, celebrity writers of a kind who exist much less now. I don't think there's as much call for what they have to offer. Uh, and uh, um, that was another time. Uh, I, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, the celebrity of certain kinds of uh, media stars uh, takes the place more and more. Uh, Louise Erdrich is a magnificent writer, uh, probably the greatest of my generation, uh, but she's not uh, she's not a name to conjure with uh, like those of the previous generation. I mean, it seems to me as I've I've certainly gotten to know lots of my fellow authors, but it almost feels like rather than being um, a group that is driving the mainstream culture that we're almost more of a subculture. Yeah, that's, uh, that's it. <clears throat> it worries me to think that the novel is uh, going to become as confined as poetry uh, became. Uh, but, uh, uh, well, there will always be an audience for, for people interested in the mystery of inner lives. Uh, so, uh, I wouldn't write the, the novel off. Uh, it's just that the novel is is slow in its revelations, and the culture has speeded up so dramatically. There, there are a few moments in this uh, in this narrative that are perhaps let's just say are more narrative moments. I mean, a lot of times you you're talking about the books. You're, um, as you said, it's not necessarily a a sequential uh, narration. Um, but every now and then you talk about a very specific event. And one of them that, that really uh, caught my attention was a medical event that happened that caused what you called the greatest rebirth in American literary history. Can you tell our listeners about that and, and why you think it led to such a renaissance in, in Philip Roth's work? Yes, he had a, he had a multiple heart transplant. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, he had a multiple uh, bypass. Uh, and uh, he never had a heart transplant. Uh, he had multiple bypass in middle age, and uh, he experienced none of the depression that usually follows that. Uh, in fact, he was in, entirely rejuvenated and became a, uh, a, a rather different writer. He describes the operation in his book, Patrimony, and uh, then he goes on to his major phase. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, it's so it is it is the greatest uh, uh, old age I can think of in American writing. Uh, Hawthorne didn't live to be old, and Melville uh, vanished from from view. Uh, Henry James did have a triumphant old age, but what the books the books that Philip was writing in his sixties uh, and seventies were his very best. And that, I think, is unique. You certainly don't find that with Faulkner or uh, Hemingway and, of course, Fitzgerald died young. So uh, that's what I was talking about. Uh, it's, it's not altogether mysterious. It's the fruit of medical technology, medical science. Um, he, had a, he, had a, he drew a bad hand physically. He was uh, 
orthopedically impaired from his 20s, and he was he had cardiac disease from his 40s. <clears throat> and yet he did manage to lead a very full life, and he, and he got to write all the books he wanted to write, which can't be said of all of us. Why do you think it is, because I think this is, is probably true, and we've covered this ground a little bit, but why do you think readers feel so connected to Philip Roth personally, not just to his, to his work, but to him as a person? Yes, this, this was a mystery to me, too. Um, certainly, Updike had his adulators and his followers and his faithful readers, and so did Bello and Mailer. Um, all these guys did, but um, uh, as they vanished one by one, Philip, there was Philip, who was still at it. Uh, and and uh, I... Um, there was some, it was some combination of availability. Uh, people knew the circumstances of his life because he had, for, for example, written so uh, fiendishly well about his first marriage in, in a, a book called My, My Life as a Man. And, uh, and yet uh, his remove uh, uh, made him mysterious known but not known both i guess that's part of it did he did he consciously cultivate this i don't know i think he was just expressing his temperament he wanted to give interviews but not too many interviews and he wanted to, to be photographed but not photographed very often you, you, of course, are a writer. You've written this book, and you've written other books as well. What, as a writer, did you learn from Philip Roth about writing? What, what did he, he teach you that you use in your career? The three-hour rule, as he called it. At least three hours a day of writing. I don't always, I'm not always obedient to it, but the three-hour rule was so... Was, what he propounded and what he lived by. But you know, the truth is <clears throat> Philip didn't stick to the three hour rule either. Philip would, would uh, make his breakfast, go to work and then break off for lunch and then go back to work and then have a swim and then go back to work. Uh, and then he'd have dinner and then he'd go back to, to the studio. And then uh, in the, when he was really in the latter stages of a book or any stage of a book, I would say in the heat of, composition, he would bring uh, his worksheets of the day into bed with him. Uh, so uh, it wasn't the three-hour rule. It was something more like the 10-hour the rule. When I asked him about his marvelous work ethic, he, he shrugged and said, uh, well, I'm just doing what my parents did. Uh, I, uh, I, go, I go to work to make art the way my father went to work to sell insurance. And I think that's a key to it, to look at it as, yes, it's a craft, but it's also a job, and you have to work at it. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, he was a man, a man on the job. And never in, he would never write in his pajamas. He would get up, dress as if for work, you know, make his breakfast as if for work, and, and then go to work. 
We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words. What word do you love to work into your writing? Huh. What word? Morning. M-O-R-N-I-N-G. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? <laughs> you know, I don't know how anyone can use the word jejun with a straight face. Where is your favorite place to write? Uh, at my desk on 57th Street. Where could you never write? In a bordello. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I'm a, I'm a stickler for them all. Sometimes I feel a little bit too old-fashioned when using the predicate nominative. And it's hard to say it is I rather than it's me. Yeah. What was the first book you remember reading? The first book I remember reading by myself was Hans Brinker or The Silver Skates. But before that, both my parents read to me. What are you reading now? I am reading for the third time uh, uh, a big, beautiful novel by Willa Cather called The Song of the Lark. What book would you like to have written? A Passage to India. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? A great big historical novel. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Well, the two best things are uh, you made me laugh, and the other best thing is you made me cry. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Benjamin Taylor, whose memoir, Here We Are, My Friendship with Philip Roth, is available wherever books are sold. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Charlie. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Remember that you can get great audiobooks and support Bookmarks or your local independent bookstore by visiting Libro.fm. Go to libro.fm and use the code WRITERS. As our listener, you'll get a three-month subscription for the price of one month, and you'll support independent bookselling and the literary arts. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. I hope to see you on the next episode. Until then... Thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.